you know, yesterday I wanted to, I uh, forgot to, um, you know, just talking about healing and we talked a little bit about inner healing prayer <clears throat> uh, in that last conference and some of the steps of doing that. Um, so what does is, what is healing look like? Dr. Bob has this in his book, Be Healed. What does healing look like, especially with, those, with respect to those seven uh, wounds? He says, um, a person feels connected and understood um, instead of abandoned. Okay, Connected and understood um, is a sign of healing, of abandonment. A sign of healing for shame is a person feels pure and worthy. Pure and worthy. Healing from fear um, means that a person is safe and secure. They feel safe and secure. Healing from powerlessness means a person is empowered and liberated. Empowered and liberated. Healing from rejection means a person is accepted and valued. Accepted and valued. We feel accepted and valued. Healing from hopelessness, the uh, wound of hopelessness, um, means that a person is just hopeful and encouraged. Feels hopeful and encouraged. And then healing of confusion, what does that look like? It means having understanding and enlightenment. Understanding and enlightenment. That's on page 190 in that book. But I thought, you know, it's helpful. You know, we've talked about healing and, you know, the obvious question is, okay, well, how do I know if if I've experienced healing? You know, and and I think one of the... um, Simple ways of answering that is just to say there's a peace there. There's a peace. There's something that there's an agitation that's no longer there, right? Um, and so, but he went through, as I said, with each of those wounds and kind of defines more specifically what that looks like. Uh, also wanted to uh, point out some other resources before we get into the talk on redemptive suffering. Uh, we have now, if you like Dr. Bob's talks that we've been listening to during the meal, okay, that you can get if you go to jp2healingcenter.org, jp2, so jpii healingcenter.org, you can actually download the audio uh, of that com- those conferences. Uh, it's called Healing the Whole Person. But there's other conferences uh, that um, there are talks for. And I've, I've gotten the CD versions just because it's worked better for me. And um, so I've, I've con- I had to send them an email or, or contact them. You know, the contact page and get a hold of them that way. They send an email, and then you can get the CD versions. But um, another one is Restoring the Glory. Another one is Holy Desire. <clears throat> And um, and then unveiled, discovering the great uh, mystery in your marriage. So I'm going to put these on the table just outside uh, the front entry. Okay, you cannot 
take them with you, okay? <laughs> and um, you cannot even buy them here, okay? Just the books, right? Um, but you're welcome to look at them and just see what the talks are titled and all that stuff. So, um, Also... There's a couple other members of that John Paul II Healing Center team there in Tallahassee. One of them is Ken Kneetman. Ken Kneetman, he wrote this book, Lenten Healing, 40 Days to Set You Free from Sin. Okay, This is a great little, it's a gem, um, because it takes the 40 days of Lent, and it goes through and gives just a little insight on how to fast from you know, uses a different day. Each day is a, a fasting from either a wound or a sin, okay? And, um, and, and has some prayers to go with it each day. And, uh, but, I mean, obviously you don't have to wait till uh, Lent to go through this book. But just to give you a sense, you know, this kind of resonates maybe with um, or just is in line with what I talked about in my own relationship with my dad. But it says... Um, regarding false burden bearing, okay, on the day four, on day four, a Saturday, he says, "Today I choose to fast from the wound of false burden bearing." If you're a parent, at some point you've you've likely been more concerned about your child being ready for a big test than they were. You might have hovered over them or badgered them to study and prepare. Your concern and personal investment were far greater than theirs. This is an example of false burden-bearing. We might justify it as mercy or diligence, but we are really taking on the cares, concerns, and responsibilities that rightly belong to someone else. This wound can masquerade as compassion, but it's really a form of confusion. I cannot tell the difference between what is mine and what is yours. At deeper levels of hurt, abuse victims will blame themselves for what was done to them, or family members will blame themselves for a loved one's suicide. False burden-bearing often connects to other faulty beliefs and emotions related to guilt and shame. It is a form of codependency, where we believe that we are somehow responsible for the outcomes of other people's decisions, and we will do everything in our power to save the other person. So I know that resonates with me. Maybe it does with you. Um, another one, uh, just to point out that uh, I had mentioned guilt. You know, there's good guilt and bad guilt. Well, he talks about it as guilt, which is bad, and then remorse, which is good. Okay, so he uses, but he says, guilt cuts deeply into our lives in many ways that we don't realize. It's connected closely to shame, the wound that leaves us feeling inadequate and inferior. Guilt lines up our past failings against us and keeps us attached to them. Our negative, self-incriminating feelings and thoughts become the measure of our lives. Guilt would say to an all-star baseball player, you only get a a hit three out of ten times. That is a 70% failure rate. Obviously, that's hitting 300, you know, and that's pretty good. Um, When we sin and fail, remorse... When we sin and fail, remorse, not guilt, is the proper response. And some might say, well, guilt, good guilt, bad guilt, whatever. Remorse is a sorrow that pricks our conscience when we sin. It helps us seek mercy and forgiveness without becoming attached to our failure. 
helps us seek mercy and forgiveness without becoming attached to our failure. So just a, uh, just a few excerpts there from that book. Really, really good. Um, this book here, Loved As I Am, by Sister Miriam James Heidlin. Uh, she also works with the John Paul II Healing Center and, and joins them on different events. And I uh, had the blessing of having her on uh, the retreat uh, this last January, the retreat that I was on down there. Loved As I Am, An Invitation to Conversion, Healing, and Freedom Through Jesus. Sister Miriam James Heidland is a, she's a sister of the uh, Society of Our Lady of the Most Holy Trinity. And she's one who experienced uh, just incredible brokenness in her upbringing, her life. And, um, and she talks freely about that. And, you know, the way I guess I would describe it is that the Lord is just glorifying those wounds over and over again. You know, and just really she's showing us how powerful testimony is. You know, when we have experienced healing, whether that's mental, physically, emotionally, or spiritually, it's good to ask the Lord, is there a way that you want me to share this? You know, only with the Lord's guidance, with his inspiration, and maybe asking somebody else that we trust, whether it's prudent or the right time or whatever. But, you know, she's testimony in my mind, or just a witness to the fact that testimony is powerful, okay? Um, a religious sister who has been, uh, you know, just broken. And, and, you know, we think that, well, you know, priests and sisters are, are immune to the, to, you know, they just come out of the womb with clerical clothes on and, and a habit, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I'm being facetious. I think you all know that's not the truth, but. So. Okay, so I'm going to um, yeah, start in on um, just redemptive suffering. Uh, and I think I touched on it earlier, and it's just simply that, you know, first of all, we don't want to just take on redemptive suffering, you know, if it's not really ours to take on, if it's not really what the Lord wants to give us. And so it's important not to assume that the Father wants, want, you know, just because we're going through a trial, just because we're, we're experiencing some kind of pain in, the, in agony in the heart, mind, soul, or body, you know, that our Heavenly Father just must want us to suffer. Yeah, it definitely is the case that trials in our lives can, um, you know, and they can and they will, and it's the Lord's desire that they lead to our sanctity our, our sanctity, our holiness, and, and in some way draws to him. But it's quite another thing to say that the Father, to say wrongly, that the Father just wants us to suffer, that he enjoys seeing us suffer. And so it's important, as Dr. Healy says in this book, Healing, Bringing the Gift of God's Mercy to the World, I highly recommend this book as well. It's one of my favorites, Bringing the Healing, Bringing the Gift of God's Mercy to the World. And that's Dr. Mary Healy, H-E-A-L-Y. She's a scripture professor up at uh, Sacred Heart Seminary in Detroit. And uh, we had her, we had the privilege of having her uh, here in Lincoln on February 24th. She came and gave a conference on basically on the same topic. And then also led us through a healing service at the Newman Center. So, um, but I just love what she says about uh, redemptive suffering in here. She, she touches upon that in a very powerful way, I believe, um, and really speaks to the hearts of us Catholics, okay? 
um, who have heard over and over again, well, I'll just offer it up, okay? Um, well, um, she says that, um, yeah, definitely it is an invitation to share in Christ's passion. Redemptive suffering definitely is an invitation to share in Christ's passion. And it becomes a means of grace for others. Uh, and she quotes uh, Salvifici Dolores, okay, Saint, the document that St. John Paul II wrote on the Christian meaning of human suffering. Uh, on the Christian meaning of human suffering. Uh, and that is an awesome document. I remember reading that in the seminary, and uh, it, it, it really impacted me at that time. But he says this, uh, those who share in the sufferings of Christ preserve in their own sufferings a very special particle, particle of the infinite treasure of the world's redemption. You can share this treasure with others. Those who share in the suffering, sufferings of Christ preserve in their own sufferings a very special particle of the infinite treasure of the world's redemption and can share this treasure with others. And so she, Dr. Healy, quotes uh, St. John Paul II there. And then she also says, points out in the um, Gospels, there's really two kinds of suffering, for the most part, that, you know, that the Lord addresses. You know, one is suffering as a result of persecution for proclaiming the Gospel. Uh, and then the other is um, some sort of suffering as a result of illness or human defect, whether physically, mentally, emotionally, or spiritually. Um, but she points out that um, when Jesus is telling his disciples to expect suffering and to endure it patiently and even to in- rejoice in it, he's usually speaking about the first kind of suffering, persecution, okay? And so, it, uh, but on the other hand, um, with respect to the second kind of suffering, you know, in, the, in illness or, or uh, some kind of experienced pain, um, not as a result of persecution particularly, um, but when he, can, when he uh, encounters that, he heals it. You know, he... Um, he confronts it and he heals it you know, as an evil to be overcome rather than a good to be embraced. And, I, and, that, my, and that point, in my mind, is very powerful. You know, just to, to see the distinction there where Jesus is saying, okay, yeah, take up your cross. Usually he's speaking about um, you know, suffering as, as a result of persecution. And then she says, uh, you know, that, um, you know, our, um, um, you know, when, when, uh, when we as Catholic Christians, you know, we, you know, that we definitely recognize the value of redemptive suffering and illness. But that doesn't mean that our first response to sickness should be the same as a response to suffering for the sake of the gospel. And, and this is what she says on page 130. 
how much wasted suffering there is in the world today, how many people are lying in hospitals or nursing homes simply enduring the pain in loneliness or even letting bitterness fester. As we say that, we probably have people in mind who are in the hospital. We're not making any judgments about them, okay? Um, but in general, we can think of, and thinking of the whole world here, okay? How many people are lying in hospitals and nursing homes simply enduring the pain? If only they knew how much potential their suffering has for empowering the church's mission to bring the light of Christ into the world. Often it is because no one has told them. And then she says this, no one has called upon their intercessory muscle. I love the way she puts that. No one has called upon their intercessory muscle. And... Um, And so, yeah, this is this is part of, um, yeah, I, th- I think uh, what our message has to be. And, and gratefully, I, you know, I, I would say that this is something that I have um, been mindful of, especially after reading Salvifici Dolores, um, Saint John Paul II's document there. I, I think I've been. Um, uh, I've, d- I've been doing what I can to proclaim that message to people when I visit them in the in the nursing homes or the hospitals, or encounter anyone who's suffering. That you know that they can um, that they're as they as they offer it to the Lord as a prayer. That it's a beautiful prayer that only they can offer, and I encourage them to do that. But I also pray for them that they are healed of what they. Um, what they're experiencing, okay? But, uh, yeah, that's, it is powerful. You know, the people are able to unite themselves to Christ's passion and offer that to him. Um, but she also says this, Ironically, Catholics faced with illness usually have no hesitation in seeking medical treatment, yet many are reluctant to ask God for healing. They assume God must want them to suffer. They go to the doctor, but not to the divine physician. This reluctance is often based on a distorted view of God as the God eager to mete out the punishment we deserve. In reality, he is the God who is rich in mercy, who delights to lavish on us the grace we don't deserve. Our first response to sickness, then, should be to do battle against it through faith and prayer. Jesus' response to illness and infirmity in the Gospels is a challenge to our attitudes of passivity. In the sick who besieged him, he saw children of God who were bound up and blocked from the fullness of life God had for them. You know, and so this is, um, basically, the point: pray for healing. Start there, right? We start there. We pray. Boldly for healing, we start there. And then let God be the one to change the prayer. Okay? See if he is calling us to something else. But we pray boldly and expectantly for healing to happen. Mind, soul, body, uh, heart, whatever. And this really was emphasized, in my mind, by a man by the name of Patrick Rice. Okay? 
he and along with uh, Father Matthias Thielen that I mentioned yesterday had come to St. Peter's on June 1st and 2nd and led a school of healing that was amazing and mind-blowing, um, where they actually led us in. There were 300 people, roughly, I'd say, that attended that school of healing, and um, <clears throat> they basically led us in how to pray boldly for pe- for healing. You know, just to ask God to heal this person physically. You know, specific, specifically zeroed in on physical healing. And um, uh, during that, the school of healing, we had 25 people that were selected, uh, selected randomly that had some physical ailment that they were experiencing. And, um, and we divided up the room and to groups and just prayed with each one of those 25 people. And 21 out of those 25 experienced some improvement in their physical condition just by praying with them. Um, and really some amazing things. I remember one gentleman saying that you know, he gave this testimony where he, you know, his, uh, he was about to have knee surgery. Or he's about to have a knee replacement in two weeks. And he was prayed over. And after that, he was doing squats on one leg. Um, it was amazing. He was doing it on both legs, um, but there was there were things there that were just amazing. Um, Patrick Rice, who's a member of the Encounter Ministries team, and this, you know, if you want to see see a movement grow from a distance or even be a part of it, um, Encounter Ministries is doing some amazing things. Um, you, that's what they're called. Encounter Ministries dot um, is the website or their Facebook page, um, they actually have uh, video clips of that testimony. They have video clips of that testimony on their Facebook page uh, that, that took place at St. Peter's. Okay, And the whole point of the testimony is to build faith. Like, yeah, God really does want to do this. You know, God really is capable of doing this. And he wants to do this. Why? Because he's just that good. You know, he's just that good. But something Patrick Rice said on you know, this whole notion of, well, okay, what if God wants them to experience a redemptive suffering? What if he wants them to offer that? Okay, He said, it's not your job to figure that out. You know, Your job is just to pray with expectant faith. Your job is just to pray with all the faith you can muster that this person be healed. It's not your job to figure out whether they're called to redemptive suffering. And um, uh, there's, so there's you know, just a lot of, um, uh, there's um, an, another um, example that Bart Schutz gives, the brother of Dr. Bob, and Bart, Bart's amazing in his own right. He's, he's got a different personality. He's the, he's the, um, he's got the defensive end on the uh, Florida State Seminoles personality, because that's what he did in college. But um, he's, uh, but one of the things he br- brings out is just the fact that or, there was one instance where he, they were praying with, and one of their events, they were praying with a, a deacon, I believe it was, who had some like rods in his back, and he was, um, could, he just couldn't bend over. 
And so they started praying with him, and he was, they said, okay, test it out, see if you, um, and he just started leaning over, and he, he touched his toes. He said, I shouldn't be doing this. And um, so um, something happened later on where the same gentleman, the same deacon, um, somehow the pain had come back. And, um, uh, and he was at another event. And they said, well, how's it going? And he said, well, I got the pain back. And they said, really? I said, yeah, I, um, um, you know, maybe it was, he was, he, I'm trying to remember the story here, where he was feeling some discomfort or something, and, and somebody said to him, well, maybe you're just called to offer that up, you know. And, um, and so that's, that's what they, they zeroed in on. They said, okay, well, is that really what you want? Is that what the desire of your heart is? I said, well, no, I want to be healed of it. And so they prayed for him again. And the same thing happened where he was able to touch his toes and be healed of it. So, I mean, just amazing things that God is wanting to do in the world. And frankly, we need it. You know, we need it. Um, because we are just, um, you know, our, our, our society is just at the level of you have to prove it to me. That, you know, you can tell me all your best arguments as to why Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world and why I should follow him. But, you know, even if it's totally logical, which it is, um, they'll just say, well, that's your opinion. Prove it to me. You know, okay, so let's pray. Let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to prove it to us. You know, prove it to people. You know, that's what this is about. Um, Just praying uh, boldly. And, and this is really the, um, that's really what uh, the message is of this book here. Um, and Dr. Bob says that Jesus' redemptive suffering uh, brought our healing and our redemptive suffering is healing for us and for others. Okay, so his redemptive suffering, that's, I mean, Jesus is the one who gives meaning to suffering, right? Otherwise, without Jesus, without the crucifix, we're just, it is pointless. It is meaningless. It, how do you explain it? But with this, God has shown us, you can turn this into an act of love. Okay, you can turn it into an act of love. If called to, if that's what God, if that's what God is calling us to. Um, okay, so just looking at those at the scenario of being in the midst of some kind of suffering that I've prayed hard about and that it's not going away, or that others have been praying for me and it's not going away. Okay, I'd say keep praying again until the Lord changes the prayer. But um, in the midst, while we're waiting on healing. Okay, maybe that's one way to put it. Um, you know, the, the answer to that is to ask Jesus to come into that. You know, don't try to run from it, but to press into it and say, Jesus, and just crying out to him, say, Jesus, this is where I'm at. This is hard. This is painful. I need you to be with me. 
And um, I don't, you may have, if you've seen some of uh, Father Sean Kilcali's talks, okay, um, he has this diagram that he's, that he draws where, you know, it's based on really the life of Jesus, okay, look at you, and I don't have a smart board or a chalkboard or anything to draw this on, but you just imagine Jesus' life where he, and then he, you know, is 33 years, along that timeline, he then comes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he's being confronted with his impending death and asking the, asking the Father to take the cup of chalice away from him, not as he wills, but as the Father wills. And, um, and then he comes to understand. It, it, it's, it's interesting, and I don't want to go too far into that, but just to point out the dialogue diagram here, but then it's obvious that um, Jesus is called to this suffering. You know, the Father, that is the Father's plan, that is God's plan for him. But, you know, maybe in his mind, you know, we could say what his future as Son of God would probably be, okay, stay forever in heaven with the Father, right? But yet, at a certain point, it takes a detour and goes into suffering, death, and crucifixion. Well, the difference between the two, heavenly bliss with the Father for all eternity and as a human suffering on a cross, you know, the infinite, there's, you can measure that pain. You can measure that pain by what I thought my future was going to be, what I wanted and what I dreamt my future was going to be, and then actually finding out where I'm at right now, okay? Um, in a similar way, you know, with us, I mean, you know, we could stub our toe and, okay, you know, it could be anything. We can measure the pain of that in the sense that, okay, I, I dreamt of a day without, and I, my plan for the day was not to stub my toe. And uh, now I stub my toe. Um, and so there's, you know, the, the, the suffering there is like this, right? Um, but um, what's the answer there? Okay, and now in a day with a stubbed toe, welcome Jesus into that. Ask Jesus to come into that. Ask him to walk with you in that, right? Um, and, um, but, you know, obviously with bigger things, okay? I just lost my job, or I just found out I have stage four cancer, okay? My dream was to do this and that and everything else. Just, you know, you can think of so many things that, were, that are on our minds that are, we wanted our life to be this, but yet we find ourselves on a detour, um, totally un, you know, something that's out of our control. And that's really what we're getting at here, things that are out of our control. And um, so I'm on this detour. And, uh, and so what's the answer to keep thinking about what I wish my, my life was going to be? Or is it to just ask the Lord to come into where I'm at? And that is the answer. Ask the Lord to come into where I'm at right now. Um, because and because there is there is that um, you know we we have we've dreamt over we have a plan for our lives that all of a sudden is not what is happening to us and so then we can sit in that pain and just struggle with what I wanted versus where I'm at or we can ask the Lord Jesus to be with us just where where we're at and um, and to explain to Him what all of that pain entails. Like, 
I wanted this, and this is what I thought, and this is what I was hoping for, Jesus, and now I'm here. I need you to be with me. Okay? It's the best I can do with uh, without any diagram, but it's powerful in my mind because, you know, as Father Sean Kilcali explains it, it just makes total sense to me that we can actually measure, you know, the suffering we're in by what we had dreamt for ourselves and actually where we're at, you know? what we had planned for ourselves and where we're at. Um, and so um, that's helpful in my mind. Um, so, I, like I said earlier, I try to, I've been pretty confident, honestly, in, in conveying the message of redemptive suffering to others, especially those who, like I said, are um, unable to get out of the house or they're... Um, just going through a um, particular trial in their lives. And it's not, really, it's not really so much because of um, my, my own personal experience within my own body, mind, heart, and soul, but also because of what I've experienced in others. When I tell people that, and they just embrace it, and it's just like, oh my gosh, amazing. Um, and I've got an example of that, a great example of that in my own family, my father. Um, and I want to, before I get to that, I want to just back up a little bit and say, okay, I told you a little bit about the, um, told you a little bit about uh, the growing up and how it was tense, you know, at times. And, you know, I look back on that too, and I remember, um, you know, just a number of things um, that, that made it difficult, but... Uh, but, um, but it wasn't like it was always tense. And there were times of joy. There were times of happiness, and we had tons of fun as a family. One of those things was um, when I was nine years old, my parents bought a boat. And uh, so back in 78, so do the math. You know how old I am now. But uh, back in 78, and the reason why I say 78 is because um, we still have that boat. It's in my mom's garage. She wishes it wasn't in her garage, but it's still, and we haven't driven it around very much. But I remember on Saturdays, we would, you know, we would go out. Uh, my dad and mom bought this boat, and we would go out and we'd go skiing. We'd just have a ton of fun just about every Saturday during the summer. And uh, where my dad wasn't typically a patient man, he was very patient on those days where he would, uh, so. I mean, one of the things was we would try all kinds of different skiing toys and stuff, you know, all this stuff. Trying, I mean, I remember the one time where we had just gone to a, a water show, water ski show down in the Ozarks, and we saw somebody skiing on an oar, right? And um, we're like, my brother and I were like, hey, we could do that, you know? <laughs> so... So I tried it a few times, and then, and then, my, and then my brother tried it, and he kept trying it, and he kept trying it, and he never fully got up. He got further than I did. But through all of that, my dad was like, you want to go again? And that was the way it always was. You know, if we fell, if we, you know, he was just enjoying seeing us have fun. He was just enjoying that, you know, just seeing us have fun um, in the water. And um, so, but he was, never, he was never the one to say, okay, oh, gosh, another time? No, we're not going again. Get in the boat. He never did that. Never did that. If we wanted to go again, sure, you can go again. 
Um, and I look back on that, and it was just such a uh, just powerful, great memory. Um, but then, um, so like I say, I had great memories of my dad, um, you know, despite, you know, some of the other things that I experienced. And, um, and that, and the, I would say the tension and the, um, you know, intimidation, you know, like I, I had a hard time expressing what was on my mind and what was on my heart because, um, you know, I was fearful of what the reaction would be, um, but my brother didn't really care. <laughs> he just, he just. So, in a certain way, I kind of relished watching my brother <laughs> just be the, be the one to um, definitely say what was on his heart, you know, and and see how Dad handled that. But um, uh, so, I, and I just, I mean, I don't get me. I love my, and I love my family. I love my family. But I, and there was a point though when I went into the seminary. Well, that wasn't what my my dad talked about. Okay, what you what he had dreamt for me, and what I <laughs> I'm not going to put it down here, but what he dreamt for me was something that um, I uh, was questioning. I'd gotten a degree in engineering, and and um, right after college, graduated from college. But those last two years of college, I was kind of thinking about being a pre or just at least going to the seminary, giving it a try. And so those first two years of seminary were very tense again, where I didn't even want to go home. It was like, because I knew dad didn't want, you know, he didn't, I knew he did not want uh, me to go into seminary. His, his, his um, reasoning was go into the workforce for a while first and then try, you know, why don't you do that? And I said, no, dad, I got to do it. I got to try it now. And so it, it was hard those two years, but then after two years, there was a change in his heart, and he was all on board. He and my mom were all on board, and um, so it was just really, really good for those last years of college and like I or last years of seminary. And like I mentioned yesterday, maybe um, you know it wasn't you know it was always when we departed. It was or when we you know. Um, he went his way and I went mine or whatever. We, it was always a handshake, right? Um, well, we had just gotten done. I'd come back from Christmas break when, uh, before I was ordained a deacon, and we were just discussing, my mom and dad and I, plans for diaconate. And um, it just went really well, and they were both excited about it and everything. And, and I was heading back to the seminary, and my dad put his hand out. I'm like, I'm not shaking your hand, you know. Um, so I embraced him, and uh, um, and so the, and that's how we would. Um, that's you know, it was it was just really good. Where that's how we would. Um, uh, we, we weren't afraid to do that from that point on, um, no matter where we were. Um, but uh, so I just praise God for that. Um, And so then, um, when I was in, uh, let's see, I was about about to head to Rome. I was just coming out of uh, St. Peter's Parish. I had, was uh, trying to get my words together here. I was the um, assistant at St. Peter's from 97 to 99, and then I was assigned to study canon law in Rome. And um, 
I remember getting ready to, to head over there. And um, I was packing things up. And my dad came into the room. And I just remember so much, um, just so much uh, peace there in that time. It was just very serene. And he came in and he said, Son, I'm sorry for the things I said to you. Would you forgive me? And uh, I said, Dad, I forgave you a long time ago. And uh, he, he uh, I just, I just praise God for that. Uh, and um, so, um, uh, but, you know, it was hard after that because I kind of, like, had I really forgiven him, you know? The, did my forgiveness really match up to that act of love, you know? Um, I really questioned that. And um, so then later, that, um, that year after I was in Rome, found out um, the following November, so... My sister had gotten a, a book. His birthday was actually November 1st. It would have been November 1st. Um, and my, my sister was looking for a book in, this, in the store. And um, uh, in the, uh, I don't know, Glory Dale Catholic bookstore. And she was just like, okay, I want to get him a book. What book should I get him? And uh, she came across this one, Padre Pio, The True Story. And so she just gave him this book. Uh, for his birthday gift, and um, and you know, it wasn't long after that that he was starting to feel weakness in his left arm, and it ended up that he had Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, so he had that over those two years um, that I was in Rome. I mean, I came back on breaks and all that, and the bishop, Bishop Bruskowitz, was so good. I mean, he said, "Look, if you want to just come back and discontinue your studies, you, you're welcome to do that." And um, I just, I don't, in my heart, it was just, you know, I think, because we didn't really know how it was all going to play out. We didn't know how. I mean, typically, someone who's diagnosed with ALS, it's, it's like, a, for like 50% of them, it's a two-year ordeal. And um, so, and that was the case for us. But there were tons of blessings during that time. Um, we were praying for Padre Pio's intercession. And... Uh, my dad became, you know, so, but reading that book um, gave him a framework for redemptive suffering, looking at what Padre Pio did with his. It was just amazing how, how that plan unfolded. And uh, my, so my dad just became amazingly, supernaturally patient. I mean, he was the one at times saying, when we were kind of showing anxiety or showing lack of trust or lack of faith, he was like, come on, let's have a little faith, all right? Um, and, um, but it, it kind of showed in different ways. You know, I remember riding around in a truck that my brother still has. Um, uh, this truck that my dad had just bought. And uh, my brother and I were in that, and he said at one point, he said... You know, I've just come to the realization that if it's God's will, I get better, I'll get better. If it's God's will that I won't, that I don't, then I won't. And um, that, to me, I was just like, wow. 
That was um, a grace, incredible grace. And so um, we were just very grateful for that. Um, and so my dad passed away on October 24th, 2001. And, uh, uh, but let me back up. There's other graces in those two years. One of them, the two years that, uh, so after the first year that I was in Rome, they came over during, um, during the summer. Okay. So I had come back for the summer and then I went back with them and my dad was already having, he was kind of, he was able to walk, but he had to go slowly and it was kind of shaky a little bit, you know, and walking in Rome on cobblestones. And it was, um, we went through the Vatican museums. That was the only time that he would get in that wheelchair. And he, it was miserable for him. He was more worried about me running into somebody than actually looking at the art. And, uh, but, you know, he just, and and actually one time he fell on the cobblestone Road and it was amazing. Like he felt like a kitten. Like he just couldn't. He just kind of rolled onto the ground and no nothing hurt. Um, but uh, one of the things that we got to do during that trip, while they when they came over and when I came back for my second year, was that we got to go to the tomb of Saint Padre Pio in San Giovanni Rotondo, and uh, that was a just amazing thing. And we were actually there on the day, the first day that we were able to celebrate or that the world was able to celebrate his feast as a beatified, as Beato Padre Pio. Uh, just couldn't plan it. You just couldn't plan something like that. And then two days later, we had the great privilege. And I think, you know, very much, um, through the help of Bishop Bruskowitz, um, had to had the uh, opportunity to meet St. John Paul II and um in a, in an audience after one of his masses and uh it was we were wait, I remember waiting in line and we're getting we get to you know, the holy father sitting in a chair and there's two kneelers I think one or two kneelers right in front of him and uh, people are coming up and kneeling down and pictures are being taken and he's handing them a rosary and so I went and knelt down when my turn came and my parents stayed behind, um, so I went first and I said, Holy Father, I am a priest from Lincoln, Nebraska. And he said, you are from America. And I, I said, yes, Holy Father. And I was, got up and I, I was about to get up and say, and these are my parents. And the photographers are saying, no, you st- stay kneeling down. And I'm thinking, how do I stay kneeling on one kneeler with, how are we going to get three people on this thing? And so, but we did, we got everybody on the kneeler and, um, um, the Holy Father looked at my dad and said, this is your son. And my dad just, all he could do is just nod. The Holy Father put his hand on his shoulder and just patted him on the shoulder. And uh, it was, that was our meeting with St. John Paul II. Just an incredible gift. And, uh, you know, but I look back on that time, and both he 
and my dad were just showing me what redemptive suffering looked like. You know, as we know, St. John Paul II, he didn't care if he was drooling. He didn't care what was happening. He wanted the world to see it. And um, so, as we know, he really showed us that. Uh, And I also had my dad doing the same thing at the same time. We just want uh, to, as I say, just in recap, we pray boldly and fearlessly for an end to healing, mind, soul, and body, and heart. Um, And until the Lord changes that prayer, until the Lord shows us something else or gives us a gift of being united to him and his passion. And, uh, and that's how we have to approach it. Um, but no doubt, redemptive suffering is powerful. You know, um, I remember one time where my dad, he would have people come and visit him, and they would just be amazed at how he was handling the, his um, illness. And there were tons of prayers being offered for him, make no mistake. And probably we'd have to say St. Padre Pio. But um, people would come and visit him and... and he would, um, they would just be amazed at how, how joyful he was, how upbeat he was. And so it was all the grace of God. We all knew it. Um, because like I said, he wasn't a patient man typically. Um, but, um, he, uh, one time after somebody had visited, it was just me and him in the room. And he looked at me very intently he looked at me like he was um, just like he was really scared. And what was he scared of? He said to me, I sure hope they know it's not me. Like his salvation depended on it. That they understood that it was from God. And uh, I've never forgotten the look on his face when I saw that. I've uh, never forgotten that because it just sticks in my mind. And he was just so, I sure hope they understand this isn't me, you know, that it's not for me, you know. Um, and uh, that's grace of God. That is the grace of God. Uh, I'm just going to end with what we heard yesterday in our reading from St. Paul's letter to the Philippians. My eager expectation, this is chapter 1, my eager expectation and hope is that I shall not be put to shame in any way, but that with all boldness, now as always, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me life is Christ and death is gain.